Today on episode number 466 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, How Learning Works, Eight Research-Based Principles for Smart Teaching, with Marie Norman and Mike Bridges. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guests are Marie Norman and Mike Bridges. Michael W. Bridges is Executive Director of the University Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Pittsburgh. In this role, he leads the university's efforts to create exceptional and consequential learning experiences. Toward this goal, he directs and works with a large team of instructional designers, teaching consultants, educational technologists, learning space designers, and assessment experts to support excellent teaching. Mike received his doctorate in social psychology from Carnegie Mellon University in 1997. His early career focused on understanding the role of psychosocial variables in recovery from coronary artery bypass surgery and breast cancer. He formerly served as the Vice President for Educational Strategy and Excellence at iCarnegie Global Learning, where he used the principles from how learning works to help instructors from many different countries develop and deliver great courses. Mike has more than 30 years of teaching experience and still feels a mixture of anxiety and excitement on the first day of every class. His most recent interests focus on understanding the role of narratives in teaching and the unending quest for a recipe for perfect falafel. Marie K. Norman is Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh. She is Director of the Innovative Design for Education and Assessment, IDEA, Lab where she leads hybrid and online educational initiatives for the Institute for Clinical Research Education, ICRE. She's also co-director of the Team Science Corps of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute. Marie received her doctorate in cultural anthropology from the University of Pittsburgh and conducted her fieldwork in Nepal, funded by a Fulbright Award. Marie's first love is teaching, and she's proud to have taught in higher education for more than 25 years, first in undergraduate and now in graduate education, teaching a wide range of courses, seminars, and workshops on topics from anthropology to leadership to team science to adult learning theory. She also brings experience from the business world having served as Director of Intercultural Education at iCarnegie Global Learning and Senior Director for Educational Excellence at ACOTAR, an educational technology startup. She is happiest working in collaboration with smart, curious, 
socially engaged people on projects at the intersections of teaching, learning, culture, technology, and design. Marie and Mike, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. I so enjoyed getting to read this book cover to cover and in revisiting it, going back and looking at your backgrounds. Mike, we're going to start with you, but Marie, just caution, you're, you're, <laughs> you're coming next. Mike, your career sounds so fascinating. I would love to have you talk a little bit about your research and the ways in which it's kind of threaded its ways in unpredictable ways into your work in teaching and learning. Yeah, it certainly represents what might be considered a a nonlinear path. It's somewhat serendipitous, guided by certain decision points that were critical along the way. So I'm a social psychologist by training, focusing on the role of dispositional characteristics, personality, and disease processes. Some of my early work was looking at the influence of psychosocial variables on recovery from what's called cabbage. It's a coronary artery bypass graft surgery. So this was with uh, oftentimes middle-aged and older men who were undergoing bypass surgery. And and we know that recovery from those processes can be quite variable. Some of the traditional medical predictors in terms of behavior, whether they smoke, whether they're overweight, the kinds of exercise they get, some of the social predictors, like whether they're married or have a, a large social support network, or even physiological variables like cholesterol levels, ejection fraction, those things, though those only those don't do a tr- tremendously good job of predicting who's going to recover and who's not. So we were really interested if there were other variables in the psychosocial realm that would add to the predictive abilities to help us understand who might be at risk from poor recovery prognosis. And so we looked at a whole range of things from dispositional optimism and self-efficacy. And, and it was a it was a great research setting. We did something very similar with um, a group of young women who were undergoing treatment for, for breast cancer. So kind of a similar trend there, but started out at, a, I, I went to did my graduate work at Carnegie Mellon, which is, is known as a fairly strong research institution. But I also had this interesting experience that I sat across the hall from a guy named Herb Simon. So Herb Simon was a Nobel Prize winner in the 70s for economics. He's considered one of the founding fathers of cognitive psychology, a dominant force at the institution and certainly in my department. And um, there was no way you could sit across the hall from Herb and not become interested in how people process information, the mechanisms by which they learn. It was a central feature of of one of his many kind of research trajectories. And that, that kind of rubbed off on me. I became really interested in teaching and learning. I found I had a particular affinity for it. And as you note in, in our book, we started out with a quote from Herb Simon that really guides our thinking about teaching and learning. And along that path, the theme has been to really understand how we create these kind of robust learning experiences for our students, whether that's in a clinical setting, whether that's stepping out and looking at some international audiences where both Marie and I have worked, or at a small private institution, uh, a large state research institution, that's kind of the unifying theme. One thing that is mentioned in your bio, which I read earlier, is this idea of creating exceptional and consequential learning experiences. Mike, that's a 
That is a unique way of describing what it is that we either do or might aspire to do in our work. Would you talk a bit about, especially I think the consequential learning experiences, what comes to mind for you when you think about learning experiences that might be of consequence to us in our lives? Yeah, it's, I think it's one of the enduring challenges that we have. I don't know, for, for most of your listeners, I assume that they're teaching either currently or will be in the future. And one of the things that at least haunts me to some degree, haunts isn't the right word, but but with which I'm concerned is, what do my learners remember? What do they know? What are they able to use two years from now, three years from now, five years from now? I'll tell a quick story. I was in New York. So we live in Pittsburgh. I was in New York and somebody called Dr. Bridges. I turned around and it was a former student who'd been in a class that I taught three or four years earlier. And so after reintroducing ourselves and kind of figuring out orienting to, okay, where do we know each other from? I, I I was really interested. So I said, so so you took my course. What can you remember um, from, it was a full semester long, 15 week course. It was an introduction to personality. What do you remember about that? Um, it was a bit humbling, his response, right? He said, well, I remember one day, I had a young daughter at the time, your daughter was sick and, and you taught class with your with your daughter on like uh, one of those baby Bjorn, baby Bjorn, right? <laughs> and her name was Zoe because she had Zoe written on the bottom of her shoes. And I said, "That's that's the only thing you remember from my class." And he said, "Well, I remember canoe as an acronym for the five dimensions of personality." And it, and it made me think about when I say consequential, I mean it's a synonym for for meaningful, impactful, applicable, something that's beyond the kind of esoteric from simply a, a broad knowledge or understanding point of view, but something that that our students can really use in the consequence of their lives. And I'd want to argue that for a man to bring in his baby girl in a baby Bjorn and teach with her on his chest really makes an important point that is a kind of consequential form of learning. And so I'm actually not surprised that that's what stood out. And that's what he remembered from that, because it's it's one of the things I think our students look to us for is models of adulthood, not just content from our courses, but what's it like to be a grown up and what are the options? And I think that that modeled a kind of merging of family and work that is was powerful. I'm so glad that you pointed that out, Marie, and how beautiful that is to be and beautiful and haunting, as you said earlier, Mike, to think about the things which we explicitly attempt to facilitate in terms of other people's learning and those unintended consequences, which I tend to think of as bad things, but what a what a delightful unintended consequence to have put that out into the world in such a way to have him remember all those years later. When I had Dan Levy on the podcast from Harvard, he introduced me to this idea of airport ideas. And it's the same thing, Mike, where you see someone in an airport five years. And you're making me feel a little bit better because I do now ask that question to students. If I see you in an airport five years from now, well, what will you remember? And I show, so I'm teaching a business ethics class. So in the beginning, we're introducing them, most of them for the first time to some of the great philosophical thinkers. And so I show uh, videos from Michael Sandel's justice videos, what's the right thing to do. And so he mentions a, a case about cannibalism, where they're in a lifeboat and 
Dudley versus Stevens, I believe, is the is the case <laughs> that that's being mentioned. And so I asked one of the students, "What are you going to remember?" And he's like, "I'm going to remember cannibalism." And I thought, oh, "Okay, <laughs> just <laughs> okay." <laughs> so, but just don't take the wrong message about yeah. cannibalism. <laughs> yes, exactly. But but you're 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 making me forgive myself a little bit more. Also, there's so I mean, this is not a great time to ask someone these final weeks of a stressful semester for everyone, what they're going to remember five years, because the fact is we just don't know what we will remember for a whole host of reasons. But yes, anyway, I want to hear now from you, Marie, a little bit about your background. I am just so intrigued by the work that you've done and, and the ways that you see it weaving into the work that you do now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my background is in cultural anthropology. I did my fieldwork in Nepal, and I've always been, I was born in Nepal, actually, too. So I've always been really interested in culture and how we're shaped by culture and the kind of vast range of manifestations of cultures there are in the world, how many different ways there are to think about things and do things. I find that really exciting and liberating. But I was also not sure I wanted to live the life of an anthropologist. I'm a bit of a homebody compared to most anthropologists. And it was really teaching anthropology that interested me the most, that I was so excited about these ideas and these cultures and that I wanted to share that with students and kind of let them into this world. So I was I was teaching anthropology when I started working in the teaching center at Carnegie Mellon, which is where I met Mike. And both of us started to do consulting with faculty about their courses. And it, to me, was extremely anthropological, that every discipline is a culture, every classroom is a culture. It's got its own languages and its own rituals. And I found that really fascinating to kind of move between those disciplinary cultures and learn the sort of the lay of the land. So that's what got me interested in in really teaching and then the scholarship of teaching and learning and and all the research that I think can really inform good teaching. And then somewhere along the line, and I'm not sure there was a particular point at which this happened, but I had an early childhood ambition of being a children's book illustrator. So I drew a lot. I was interested in art and aesthetics. And somewhere along the line, working on teaching and learning, I really came to, to appreciate beauty as an important part of learning, that design, visual design, both kind of for reducing cognitive load and creating kind of clear, accessible learning experiences, but also beautiful ones and inviting ones. And so in my more recent work, I have a small team of people at the University of Pittsburgh. I, I now teach in the School of Medicine where we do a lot of graphic design and video production and instructional design. And I find that really energizing and exciting is sort of how do you meld that kind of visual design and course design in the best way. I'm quite intrigued by the idea that's coming from both of how you've just shared about your lives and your careers, the ways in which we have these unexpected paths and yeah. and yet, how many times something from our childhood, there was a rootedness in some sense of who we are and in how we might contribute to the world. Mm. So it's fascinating to me. And, and and would you ever have thought, Marie, growing up that, that you would have not illustrated children's, but somehow you would be in science or medicine? Does that? 
That's the last thing I would have expected. And right, life takes you in some interesting journeys. And I think Mike and I have talked about this a lot, that we've really come to appreciate sort of how one thing leads to the next thing. A really wonderful collaboration can take you in a new direction. And I think really what, I don't want to speak for Mike here, but has been the sort of the through line is that we love to learn. We love to learn new things. And when you love to learn new things, it takes you towards other new things. And it might kick you off a sort of a linear path, but ultimately it all comes back to that. Yeah, I think we're I think we're curious by nature. We want to learn. We're both somewhat exploratory. We're we're willing to take some risks. And that's that's challenged us in interesting ways. As as you recognize, we've taken these these nonlinear paths. And it's funny because I, I oftentimes will talk explicitly to my students. They have this idea as a, a, a 21, 22, 23, I teach some graduate courses, right? That that here they are in their life at one spot and they look forward and they believe that it's going to be this linear path for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And there's a side of me that that almost paternally wants to say, oh, grasshopper, you know, <laughs> um, it may be very different. And and it, certainly I had that view, but there have been these decision points, these in- intersections that provided opportunities, some more planful, some more strategic than others, some completely serendipitous that led to new and different paths. And as a consequence, I would have to learn learn a new skill, a new ability, a new talent, and oftentimes that would be the foundation on which the new trajectory would take off. So it's this series of of kind of bifurcations over this uh, over this period of time that's been that's been fun. Yeah. It's led to international work. It's led to work in academic medicine. It, it led to work in in the on the business side for a while in, in publishing. But each one of those experiences adds to a collective body body of experience that in some ways posi- positions us uniquely in the work that we do. I know an important aspect of the work in especially in the second edition is around the social and emotional components of learning and something that you just said Mike I think is an important thing perhaps for where we might begin in this part of our conversation you mentioned curiosity I think most of us at least if you've been listening to the show maybe ever <laughs> recognize how important curiosity is to the learning i think sometimes in my own mind i oversimplify that a little bit as that's where it ends but to to feebly attempt to truncate what you just said there's the element of curiosity as vulnerability would you talk about the vulnerability required to continue that curiosity far enough that we might experience deeper learning. Mm. There's definitely a leap of faith there, right? To sort of follow your curiosity or follow kind of where the path takes. It's not as reassuring as thinking, okay, I'm going to study to be a pharmacist and then I'll be a pharmacist. And I do think there are times when that is, it's very, it's full of uncertainty. Like, I hope this all winds up okay. I hope that it leads me to a better place. And and I think that's difficult for younger people to have that faith because they haven't, they just haven't been doing it long enough. But looking back over, I love the choices I've made. I wasn't usually very conscious that they were choices, right? Or that they were heading in any particular direction. But I think it's given me, and I know Mike agrees, 
this range of experience and knowledge to draw from, which is, I think, the essence of creativity, right? Like creativity is a matter of making connections between things. It's not just coming up with things out of thin air, but it's connecting things that maybe weren't connected. And when you have worked in different spaces, I think it's easier to draw those connections and it can be very rewarding. Does that get at what you were talking about with vulnerability? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also think that at the heart of vulnerability is a recognition that I don't know, right? I'm not an expert. I have a very nascent understanding at the very best. And, and so to, to make that admission either or that recognition to either yourself or if you're a part of a broader community of learning, that does take some vulnerability, particularly as you advance your career, right? When students look to you as an authority, a, a guide to admit, I have absolutely no idea about this. And then the the privilege and kind of the excitement of, but let's figure this out together yeah. or let's explore. That's a really fun space to be. And I don't think I was very comfortable early in my career doing that. In fact, I know for sure I wasn't. Yeah, I think it's taken me a long time to get there. When I moved into academic medicine, which was not my home discipline in any way, shape or form, there's a big culture of mentorship in medicine. And I was encouraged to kind of sign up to be a mentor to someone. And I was like, I have nothing to offer. I'm not a doctor. I'm not even really a researcher in the sense that that my colleagues are. But I finally, after many years, sort of gotten to the place where I realized, you know what? People need to be mentored by folks who have not gone down the, the beaten tr- track and they need to be exposed to other options and non-traditional careers. And they need to hear from people who approach their careers, not in such a goal-oriented style, but maybe a more relational or experiential style. So I'm beginning to recognize that there's a, there's a place for us as mentors too. <laughs> what else do you want to make sure that we are thinking about when it comes to social, the social and emotional components of learning? So we, we were talking a bit about this, certainly in the context of all the change that's that's happening both in the world and in higher ed. Right. I mean, there's there's a great deal of social unrest where the, the last three years characterized by our experience with COVID, the changes in higher ed, the demographic shifts, the the fewer number of, of students that are coming out of high school, the, the ge- geographic shifts away from particularly the northeast where we're living and and to the south and the west, the continued debate about the role of higher education and its value proposition. And um, technologies are changing all the time. We've got a lot of new political incursions into higher ed curriculum. The The pace of change is dizzying. And, and all of those have social emo- emotional components. I, I would also say that what we're seeing, too, is the increasing diversity of the student populations. Right. And, and so with that with that increasing diversity comes the need for greater attention to equity and inclusion in the classroom. And so if, if our goal is to make higher ed more accessible, more inclusive, we need to pay attention to a, a much more kind of person-centered dispositional aspects of our students and recognize the role that that diversity plays in terms of background and experiences and expectation as, as an asset to our classrooms. And I think there's, there's a, a great quote that somebody observed that just, just as medicine 
the, the holistic movement in medicine has really challenged physicians, doctors to treat the whole patient, right? Not the symptoms, but the, but the person as a whole. Our student-centered approach to teaching requires us to teach the whole students and not just content. And as our populations become more diverse, we have to recognize not just the cognitive side. Uh, one of the principles we talk about is prior knowledge, but one of the ways that we've expanded and furthered our, our discussion of the important role of, of certain grounding principles is to really recognize who our students are, the individual differences that they bring to the classroom setting, and how that influences their what they attend to, how they perceive, how they interact, not only with the environment, but with the knowledge and the skills that we're hoping to build and develop. So that's that's a mm -hmm. that's a thirty thousand foot view. Yeah, but also how much they bring to the table from those different backgrounds and different experiences that we can all learn from. So uh, and, and also real, we've given a lot more thought in, in the second edition of the book to things like the climate of learning, that issues of belonging have just emerged as enormously important, that people can't learn well when they feel under any kind of threat. And that could be stereotype threat, where they're worried about confirming some kind of pernicious stereotype. But it's also the feeling that they don't belong here, maybe as a first-generation student, maybe as a person of color, the, the subtle messages, and sometimes not so subtle messages from the university about kind of who this system is designed for and who it's not designed for really influences people's learning and achievement within the academy. And so if we really want to mean business about diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have to really start looking carefully at the messages embedded in the content that we use, whose stories are included, whose backgrounds are included, whose perspective is centered, and also the tone of syllabi and, and classroom interactions, you know, the subtlest kinds of microaggressions that can, again, sort of tell you who who belongs. So so I think that's another thing we've become more aware of as we've scattered and gone to different universities with different student populations is we got to be a lot more mindful about the culture of our classrooms and take responsibility for it. And that requires, coming back to vulnerability, much more humility on our own parts, right? We don't necessarily know, as Mike said before, precisely what we're dealing with. And so we have to stay humble and open to learning from students. Mike, you talked earlier in our conversation about running into that young man all those years after taking your class and what it was that he remembered. Something that for me has been really important in my own sense of humility is this class that they're taking with me is not just their only class in the sense of wanting not to take myself overly seriously or the class overly seriously. It's a, it's a part of a broader thing. But yet also the humility that comes from if we really care about what we do, it, it, it's helpful to, to be reminded and, and be exposed to the ways in which we are acting in solidarity with others such that the humbleness of if I, if I wasn't able to get across what, what was hoping to get out of this particular class, that hope, that belief that other people who share those values and care about the world and, and the world that these students both currently and in the future will be such a big part of, that's, that's an aspect of maybe collective humility 
that I think is important since I was raised in in a individualistic society, I have to constantly go like, how do I take that and try to attempt feebly to other ways of thinking that doesn't come as naturally for me? Any thoughts in terms of more of that collective humility that's important for the work that we do? So you make an interesting observation, and I think it's one of the things, one of the valuable lessons that we that we took away from the time when we were all challenged with figuring out how we're going to maintain instructional continuity, engaging experiences for our students while at the same time dealing with the COVID virus, right? So one of the things that we learned was that demonstrating, articulating our solidarity with our students in terms of the experiences that they were going through and recognizing explicitly that those were shared experiences went a long way in helping creating a classroom climate where students felt heard, seen, and valued. It also went a long way in helping students with different perspectives, different points of view, feeling as though, again, in many ways, they were heard and seen in ways that perhaps they hadn't been heard and seen before. So that, that was just a reaction to your 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 observation about the solidarity I think sort of in that vein, too, that when we all kind of started teaching through Zoom, we're doing it from our own houses with our posters on the wall and our cats walking across the keyboard and and the noise of people in other rooms. And that that was humanizing in both directions, that students got to see us as kind of contextualized as more whole people. And we got to see the same and often sort of the not great, not super optimal context from which they were trying to join a class. My students, many of them are are doctors, and they're trying to join classes from tiny little conference rooms on the wards where people are coming in and out. And it just gives you a little bit more sense of what they're grappling with. And a little more, I think there's a little bit more grace given now since COVID towards the stressors and situations in people's lives. And I, I appreciate that about COVID. Maybe not about COVID per se, but it's a, you know, a yeah. silver lining. I love the thematic direction that this has taken around vulnerability, because mm-hmm. I, I do, I, I think it's one of the important characteristics, dispositions, I think it's a skill that we can also learn that we bring to the classroom that makes it a more equitable place, a more inclusive place. And, and I think We as instructors, faculty members, teachers, even parents, if we model that, what that does is give our students the space to be intellectually vulnerable, right? To make mistakes, to grow, to understand the value of feedback, constructive, right? That that there is this allyship, there is an, an advocacy that exists within the classroom that I am trying to help you be the very best you can be in the realm that we're in which we're we're operating together. I, I teach a survey right now. I'm teaching a survey research methods course, right? So my goal is to help you be the very best survey researcher that you can possibly be in the context in which we're operating. And I give them plenty of space to, to mess up and to, to be intellectually vulnerable and to recognize that they come up with a lot of misconceptions, perhaps, they have many times misinformation. And, and that's a great, that's not only is that an okay place to start, but that's a great place to start. 
And okay, Leopard I'm going to Sa- steal an idea of yeah. Mike's. Mike, I'm told this is really low of me to do, but yeah, go ahead. Mike has been using this technique in his survey methods course that I think is fabulous and does speak to the kind of creating a space where vulnerability is okay, it's allowed, which is that he cold calls, except it's warm calling, it's not meant as a gotcha. So warm calls on students and tells them that they can either answer the question with what they think is the right answer, or they can answer with what they know is a wrong answer. So for example, if you ask something like, what's the optimal size of a focus group, rather than giving the right answer, they could say, well, it's not 30. And then they'd have to explain why, right? That's too big. That's unwieldy. You wouldn't hear from everybody. And it's not two, and they could explain why. And in fact, you're getting into much deeper understanding of the real reasons behind the best practices using that. But it also sort of opens up space for people who may not know the sort of book answer to participate regardless. And I I particularly like that as a way of sort of saying, we build knowledge together. (laughs) And part of that is understanding why the wrong answers are wrong. What a tremendous idea. What a tremendous idea. I I do something similar, but also totally different, which is you can either answer or you can phone a friend. And I just think that's kind of fun. I like that too. Yes. So I think I'm going to maybe also take this from Mike and you can either answer or phone a friend or give a wrong answer and say why. Well, and and it's it's funny because this was catalyzed by a course that I'm teaching right now where I couldn't really get, and and I, I, feel pretty skillful when I'm in the classroom, but for whatever reason, I just couldn't get them to respond. And so I, I thought about it for a while and, and I thought, well, okay, certainly coming up with a wrong answer might be easier, less intimidating, less threatening for whatever reason. And it took off and they actually, they have fun with it. Sometimes they tease each other and they go with completely ludicrous stuff. But then they'll 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 check each other, and it's this is the first semester I've ever done it. I need to think a little more deeply about how to operationalize it. But I, I think there's a kernel of an idea there in that by identifying the wrong answer, oftentimes they exclude a whole realm of possibilities, which in and of itself is a piece of knowledge. What doesn't fit, right? And then some explanation around it. So. I get really curious about wrong answers, and I have been told by students before that one of my superpowers is that I will tell students when they're wrong, because I guess other people don't, that, that that's maybe a, too vulnerable for other professors to do. So they'll kind of be like, great job, Johnny, and we'll <laughs> move right on. So they'll say you have a superpower of telling someone when they're wrong, but then not making them feel stupid. And I am truly intrigued by the wrong answers, because I often find there's actually either some kernel of truth in it that that represents some fascinating way of looking at something I hadn't even anticipated, or that there's something where I go, oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't do as good of a job, or at least I, I more understand. Oh, well, of course that misunderstanding. Now I see how that misunderstanding, it just helps me be a better educator to be curious yeah. about the wrong answers and I mean, not really even call them wrong, but just tell me more about this. And I mean, yeah, anyway. 
It's almost time to get to the recommendations segment. But before we do, I'd like to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. If you've been listening for a while, you know that Text Expander is one of the essential tools that I consider a device isn't really complete unless it has Text Expander on it. And if it doesn't, it always feels weird because I'm so used to using it dozens and dozens of times every day. What Text Expander does is allows you to easily set up these these things they call snippets, short, short little bits of text that you type in and they expand either to something longer or something that you typically make a mistake over or something that that is the same but has some variables like the show notes for the podcast. I pull up text expander, the little snippet, and it says, who's the guest? What's the episode number? What category does it belong in? And, and then all the stuff that remains the same on all the show notes gets entered in along with that snippet. And then I can easily take notes with a, with a really simple template inside of the text editor. Text expander shows up wherever you happen to be typing. So whether you're in a word processor or on the web or in a, in a message or an email, everywhere you go, you can take Text Expander with you. And it, it allows you to type less and be able to say more. And it, it reduces the repetitive things that you might do and allows you to free up your creativity and some of the more authentic things that you might wish to communicate in whatever message it is you are typing. So thanks to Text Expander for being such a longtime sponsor of the show and such an essential part of my computing life. Head over to textexpander.com slash podcast and you can find out a little bit more about Text Expander and redeem a 20% off special offer for teaching in higher ed podcast listeners. Thanks so much to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the point in the show where we get to do our recommendations. And today I have a recommendation. It's going to be a total spoiler alert for people. I would like to recommend a book called How Learning Works, Eight Research-Based Principles for Smart Teaching, the second edition. And we've been, of course, talking about the book this entire time. But I just wanted to read the quote, Mike, that you mentioned earlier in our conversation, because what a wonderful way to start. And the spirit with which this quote opens the book just flows with generosity and competence and care throughout every page. So this is the book This is the quote that Mike mentioned from Herbert A. Simon, one of the founders of the field of cognitive science. And I'm quoting and reading from your book, learning results from what the student does and thinks, and only from what the student does and thinks. The teacher can advance learning only by influencing what the student does to learn. Thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for the opportunity to get to read it in advance. It always feels like, you know, I get the special, (laughs) the special opportunity to, to really let it work in, in me and in my thinking in, in advance, which is always such an honor to do. And so delighted to be connected with you. And now Marie, to have you share whatever it is you would like to recommend today. Absolutely. And thank you very much for those kind words about the book. I think my recommendation, I have so many recommendations I'd like to make, but I think the one I'm going to recommend is another book called, it's a book and a blog and a set of trainings from a group called Teach Like a Champion. So a a lot of people are aware of the book, which is for K through 12 educators, grounding a lot of really useful classroom techniques 
in terms of the research underlying them. So it's kind of the reverse of our book. But I've gone through some trainings recently by those folks that I have considered so stellar that have changed my teaching practice in a way nothing else has. It's very, very hands-on. It breaks down teaching skills and gives you an opportunity to practice and reflect on them. And I would recommend those for anybody teaching any level, any discipline. Mm, wonderful. And Mike, Mike, what would you like to recommend today? So I'm going to recommend a couple of kind of reflective prompts or probes. I've been thinking about these a, a lot in the last six months in particular, and that's consider who may be left out as a consequence of the way you have designed your course and think about who may be left out as a consequence of the way you teach or deliver your course. And, and that, those are, those are hard things to sometimes to come up with an answer. I mean, I find myself thinking really hard about those. And that's one of those deals where you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I'm a good sleeper, but occasionally I can't go back to sleep. And then I'll lie there and think about it. And and I think that challenges us in ways to think about, you know, supporting those students who may be left out. And one of the great things that we know, right, as we we lift all all boats as we as we support those students who may be left out in in our approaches either in design or in delivery we benefit all students and that's the fun about what we do that's the that's the interesting cool challenge sometimes the the hair pulling challenge but it's still the it's why we do what we do it's why we have fun doing what we do it's why we like to talk to people who who share ideas and in these kinds of venues right mm. So much, so much. Marie, I know you also love talking about teaching. You talk about that in your bio, just in terms of being an absolute teacher at heart. What a joy it has been to get to read your book now twice, two different editions, and to get to learn from you today and be connected with you. It's absolutely been a pleasure, and I appreciate you so much, and I'm going to be walking away. <laughs> from this conversation, doing a lot of thinking. And and Mike would love to have conversations with others who might explore a little bit how to answer these prompts. So thank you each for your mm -hmm. ways in which your stories have woven into so many people and impacted this profession so profoundly. Well, Bonnie, thank you for giving us this opportunity and for your podcast, which has given me so much to think about for, for many years. So uh, we, we are honored to be on your podcast and to be given this chance to talk about our lives and our books. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's our pleasure. Thanks once again to Marie Norman and Mike Bridges for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. They are just two of the five co-authors of How Learning Works, the second edition. Thanks to each of you for listening. Today's episode was produced by me, Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. And if you have not yet signed up for the email updates from Teaching in Higher Ed, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. You'll receive the most recent episode's show notes as well as some other things that don't show up in the main episode. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. We'll see you next time.